0: with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. the volume Looking for a super offer for Super Bowl 58? Well, DraftKings has you covered. New customers can bet on the big game and turn 5 bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. The line right now is at San Francisco minus 1.5, but you can bet all sorts of things on the game, even the coin toss. Although, big shock, it's going to be 50-50 odds there. My brothers and I always place a bunch of bets on the Super Bowl every year. I'm not ex- actually sure what I'm going to do yet, but I'm excited. It should be a great game. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58 with code hoops. Again, that's H-O-O-P-S. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call eight seven seven eight hopeny hope ny or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888 888- 789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See DKNG.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gambling resources. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Hope all of you guys are having an incredible week. Got a fun show today. We're going to hit the Bucks and the Suns from the late night slate last night. And then the Minnesota Timberwolves blew a big lead in Chicago against the Bulls in what was a highly entertaining game and kind of informing about both teams. So we're going to talk about the Bulls and the Wolves. By the way, Bulls 19-13. and 13 since November 30th, so they've become an interesting little spunky team here in the middle of the season, and then after that, I've got seven or eight mailbag questions for you guys at the end of the show where we'll be bouncing around the rest of the league. Also, for those of you guys who missed it last night, we went for almost an hour with Colin Cowherd and hit like seven or eight different teams, a ton of content bouncing around the league. We have some breakout clips on our channel, but the actual full show is on the Colin Cowherd podcast YouTube channel, so make sure you guys get over there to check that out. And then don't forget, tomorrow we're going live right after the trade deadline and then live again after Lakers Nuggets in the evening. So we got a double show day tomorrow. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. It means mean a lot to me if you guys would take a second to scroll down and hit that subscribe button. Don't forget about our podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts, under hoops tonight. It's also super helpful for us if you leave a rating and a review on the podcast feed. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT. That's where I put film threads from time to time as well as show announcements. And last but not least, keep dropping mailbag questions in those YouTube comments so we can keep hitting them throughout the season. Lots of good questions at the end of the show today. All right, let's talk some basketball. So again, important context here. No Damian Lillard last night. No Brooke Lopez last night. Chris Middleton sprained his ankle and apparently left the arena in crunches, uh, crutches in a walking boot. So kind of a disaster night for the Bucks. That said, I thought they competed really well on the defensive end. Yet another, again, like, In terms of defensive effort and commitment to the details, I think they have gone up a significant level since Doc Rivers came back, which is hard to really see the forest for the trees when you're one and four in that span. But I did think it was another good positive step for them on the defensive end of the floor. Giannis guarded Kevin Durant pretty damn well. Just one of the few guys and kind of kind of can stay with him step for step and contest shots. Malik Beasley was trying really hard against Evan Booker, even though he's given up quite a bit of size there. And so they were able to keep things interesting throughout most of the game. But the Suns offense broke through in a big way in that fourth quarter. Bradley Beal had nine points in the first four minutes of the fourth quarter. I talked a lot about the idea of, you know, uh of high-level closeout attacking as a as a as an important function of high level offense especially when you get to the later stages of the playoffs and in large part just because defenses get so much better they're going to chase you off the three point line they're going to take away the rim this is why I hyper focus on spot up efficiency rather than actual catch and shoot efficiency because catching and shooting is only one phase of making a defense pay and when you're not good at putting the ball on the floor guys can actually recklessly close out at you without necessarily compromising the defense too much and one of the things that the the Suns were doing a lot of were, were like two man game with Bradley Beal and Kevin Durant to try to get uh Malik Beasley switched on to Kevin Durant so that they can go down to the block on him and they did that early fourth quarter quick double team from Giannis quick swing pass out to Bradley Beal and knocks down a three then later on Kevin Durant Kevin Durant pretty consistently was drawing that blitz out above the key draws a blitz drops it to Yusuf Nurkic Nurkic makes a kick out pass to Bradley Beal on the left wing pump fake, rip through one dribble, pull up, elevate, knock it down. That's a high-level closeout attack. That's a situation, if you watch that play, the catch-and-shoot three is not there. The driving layup is not there. And so there's an opening there in the middle of the floor, and having a guy who can capitalize on that is super valuable. And then the matchup attacking was a big one. They went to the post against campaign with Bradley Beal, drove right through him to the basket for a left-handed layup. Then he drove right past Pat Connaughton, actually smoked the layup, but he's just such a good athlete that he's able to get back up off the floor on that second jump, get the ball, put it back in. That was the big spark for that early fourth quarter run for the Suns. And then pretty quickly they went up big and the game was basically over at that point. Bradley Beal brings that power and force to the offensive end of the floor that the rest of the guys don't have. This is kind of, it kind of reminds me of like what Kawhi Leonard brings to the LA Clippers where, you know, there's a certain finesse element to the way that they play. It's a lot of like high level skill. These are guys that have made their, their living in the NBA by working harder on the details in the gym by themselves than anybody else and polishing up these extremely well-rounded skill sets to generate high quality shots. Well, A lot of times that, I shouldn't say a lot of times, it is possible that that can fail you in a lot of ways because there's variance in distance shot making, right? And so having a real physical imposition on the game is a great counter to that. Okay, the shots aren't falling, but hey, I'm faster than you. Hey, I'm bigger than you or whatever it is, right? And like that to me is the role that Bradley Beal plays on the Suns and the role that uh, Kawhi Leonard in particular plays on the Clippers in the sense where it's like he's actually just a top tier athlete. For his position and he can get he kind of pulls out to like 30 feet and he kind of gets going downhill with like a series of in and out dribbles and that defender is just panic backpedaling on his heels. There's a step back jumper that he hit on Jay Crowder, I think in the middle of the fourth quarter, if I remember correctly. And it was just one of those deals where when he backed up and he started coming downhill at Jay Crowder, Jay Crowder just has no chance to actually take away the jump shot and the drive. And so he's just really aggressively backpedaling and Bradley Beal can rise up into this like easy, like 12 foot pull up jumper. That's barely even contested because of the physical advantage he brings to the table. And so, you know, if there's, if there's a big upside uh, by, by going with an, a third star versus a higher level role player, you may lose out on some of the details of the game, especially on the defensive end and in rebounding situations and just some of the role player stuff. But there is something to be said about that additional high level offensive production, right? And like specifically with Bradley Beal as the top tier athlete in the group, because Kevin Durant is is extremely tall and long for his specific scoring archetype and Devin Booker is one of the most skilled players in the league but Devin Booker's not a top tier athlete at the two guard position he's not going to physically overwhelm players the way that a guy like Bradley Beal can in his position group Devin uh Devin Booker continued his hot streak he had 32 points did most of his work in ball screens he had 19 of his 32 shooting out of ball screens and dribble handoffs just too big for Malik Beasley he's really patient like Once he gets over the top of the screen, Malik Beasley just comes, because he's working really hard, trying to get back into the play. And Devin Booker will basically just patiently, whether it's a pump fake or just putting him in jail and waiting, he's waiting for Malik Beasley to end up back on the ground. And then he can just rise back up. And he's so good at like patiently waiting for those little 10, 12-footers that he can get after the defender comes back down to the ground. Devin Booker's 33 points per game in his last 11 games on 55% shooting and 42% from three. So kind of maintaining that top tier superstar level of production that we kind of expected from Devin Booker for the whole season. Wasn't there really at the start, but now he's starting to get into his groove. And then Kevin Durant picked his spots. He, He was particularly aggressive against Jay Crowder. You could just tell he liked that matchup in particular, and he was going to work whenever he got him on an island. I also thought Kevin Durant defended Giannis pretty well. And, you know, again, like one of the big, turnarounds of this Suns streak cuz like they're 16 and 6 since they lost to Dallas on Christmas Day and they have uh the 10th best defense in the league over that span so a top 10 defensive effort over basically a chunk of the season that's more than a fourth of the season and they have the third best record in the league over that span including a lot of quality wins and a big part of that is one of the things I've talked about throughout Kevin Durant's career, which is when he engages himself defensively, he's legitimately one of the most talented defensive players in the league, and he just has a, a really unique uh, ability to impact games there. And then the last guy I wanted to shout out on the uh, Suns front was Kev- uh, was uh, Bull Bull played a really under-control game, using his length and athleticism just to be a pain in the ass. Short shifts and still had six rebounds. Had a crazy block. This transition play where A.J. Green got a a corner three for the Bucs kind of in like one of those run-out situations. He was way behind the play and just gave crazy effort and somehow got back in and blocked the three. But the most impressive part to me about it was, you know, Bo Bo has a tendency, just especially from the earlier phase of his career, to kind of try to do too much offensively, and that wasn't there for Bow in this game. Just, just was being another spoke in the wheel, so to speak. You were there, were so, It was interesting watching the game because the Suns fans were just begging him to shoot half the time he'd catch the day of basketball because obviously, you know, is a little bit of a fan favorite, right? But no, he was super patient. He he caught the ball and he didn't have like a fantastic look. He was turning and looking to run that next dribble handoff. And just, like I said, a really under control game. Didn't force anything. The Suns were plus eight in his minutes. As a matter of fact, in Bow's shifts... The Suns haven't lost his minutes since December 27th, so he's been kind of a useful contributor for them. He's providing, if you extrapolate, I use per 36, not as a method of like what this player could be if he played more minutes, but just as a method of trying to capture activity for a bench player. And Bobo is averaging 16 points and 12 rebounds with 3.3 stocks per 36 minutes so far this season. Just really active in his opportunities. So another good step in the right direction for the Suns. again, 16 and six since, uh, since their loss to Dallas on Christmas day. So trending in the right direction there again, the most encouraging part there is the defensive end of the floor. They need to be closer to what the nets were with Harden, Kyrie and KD, where it's a two-way I- impact. It's not just competing on the offensive end of the floor with all of their perimeter skill, but also using their perimeter skill on the defensive end of the floor to stay in basketball games. And then on the Bucks front, the one thing I wanted to hit was a big story after the game and and uh, uh, Doc actually asked about it in his post-game presser, but Doc has basically refused to play the young players uh, since he took over. and the five games since Marjan Beauchamp and Andre Jackson Jr. basically haven't played. They both got a little bit of garbage time, but that's it. So, you know, this is where I want to uh, want to kind of like address the difference between what a regular season methodology is versus a playoff methodology. So Doc isn't the first coach in the world to not trust young players. I mean, we've been talking about this all season with Steve Kerr as well. And I do understand it in the big picture in the sense that, like especially in high leverage situations, it is more important to have a higher floor than a lower uh, than it is to have a higher ceiling with a role player because mistakes can be catastrophic. And when you have stars that can really strangle control of the game and they don't make mistakes, you'd prefer to have them next to other players that don't make mistakes and trust your stars to provide the ceiling in that situation. And so a lot of times going with a a Jay Crowder, you know, in big minutes might be the safer bet in a playoff series. Because Jay Crowder might not make the critical mistake that a a Marjan Beauchamp or an Andre Jackson Jr. can make, right? He might be a little bit more confident and comfortable just because he's been in more big basketball games, right? Like, he has, like, a certain confidence in terms of, like, going toe-to-toe with other veteran players because when Jay Crowder was in his prime, he was a guy that could guard those guys pretty damn well. And so I understand it within the playoff context. But here's the thing. If there's a time to use young players... It is during the regular season, because during that regular season, a lot of times you can play the, as a coach, you can play based on which players having that kind of night. You give Marcian Beauchamp and Andre Jackson Jr. a first half shift and you read it. It's like, oh, he's locked in today. He's got it going. He's confident. We can get his ceiling today. You lean into him, right? Or, oh, this is too big of a game for him. He's not ready for this particularly. This isn't the night to play him, pull him, run some more Jay Crowder because he's going to be more comfortable in those situations, right? Like that's where you can actually take advantage of some of that upside. And most importantly, for a team that's pretty damn slow without Giannis on the floor, Marjan Bochamp and Andre Jackson Jr. are two of your very best athletes on the roster. And like never underestimate the impact of a high motor athlete in the NBA regular season. They can just wreck havoc in a lot of the other areas of the game. And so a lot of times like I view it as a missed opportunity in the sense like, do I think the, I'll give you an example on the Lakers front. Like, do I think Max Christie can play big minutes for the Lakers in a playoff run and be like reliable? Probably not. He's young. It's it's a totally different setting there. But during the regular season, you bet your ass you got to lean on on Max Christie. He's one of their best perimeter defenders. He's a guy that brings athleticism and motor to the table. You've got to lean on that as much as you can to get through the 82. Again, getting through the 82 is an entirely different grind than getting through the 16 wins you got to get through to win the NBA title. So I do disagree with Doc's uh, approach there. He was he was questioned about it, and he gave this answer that was like, oh, we're going to need those guys. And it's like, yeah, well, they can't really help you if they're not on the floor. So, So it's something to keep an eye on over the course of the next few weeks. All right, moving on to Wolves Bulls. This is a really fun game. The Wolves jumped them early. It was a classic, you know, like January, February regular season game early on. It was sloppy. It was way in the up and uh, like up and down open floor type of of play style. The Bulls in particular were not doing a very good job of packing the paint to test Minnesota's decision making and their spot up shooting, which is the like like kind of the the game plan for Minnesota. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Like you got to pack the paint. You got to get the ball. You got to test the decision making of their stars. Like the Wolves are actually 24th in spot-up efficiency this year, something we'll dive into a little bit later. And they turned the ball over more than everybody else in the league per 100 possessions except for the Jazz and Pistons. And so when you actually make the Wolves be decisive and make them shoot from the – or I shouldn't say shoot, but play off of closeouts, that's where you can have success defensively. And they just did not do that in the first half. They were getting killed in transition. Uh, um, Anthony Edwards was ridiculous. Anthony Edwards and Carl Towns combined for 41 points in the first half as they went uh, as they went up, I think 23 It was the biggest lead in that particular game. But then the Bulls go on a quick run to start the second half. Kobe White hit a couple of threes, a catch-and-shoot one, and then a pretty nasty step back in transition. Then Nikola Vucevic went right to work on get, against Carl Towns in the post for a little shot in the lane. And then DeMar DeRozan drew some free throws. All of a sudden, it was a 10-0 run, and it was a 13-point game. And from there, it just turned into a dogfight. The Bulls' defense in the second half was amazing. They did a much, much better job of keeping the game in the half court and forcing the Wolves into their worst tendencies. Much better execution on offense. They shot the ball better. They turned the ball over less, which kept Minnesota out of transition. And then in the half court, they just really did a much better job of preventing the uh uh um the the Timberwolves of getting easy shots around the basket and forcing them to spray out to shooters. And you could really see that in the play type data. They only had 10 spot up possessions, Minnesota did, in the entire first half and they had a few dozen in the second half. So like a, an entirely different type of play style from the Bulls. They were doing a really nice job of sticking to their scheme. So they were ducking under ball screens with Mike Conley And one of the things with Mike Conley that you can prey on is he's not overly aggressive. He's one of the best shooters in the league. He's like a mid-40s pull-up three-point shooter. But he only takes two and a half of them per game. He's good at them, but he does not force them. It's typically only if it's very open. He actually took two pull-up threes in this game, but one of them was a transition pull-up three in the first half. And then the second one was right at the beginning of the fourth quarter. He took this, like, incredibly difficult, like, sliding sidestep three in the right corner. But when Ayu Dusunmu or Kobe White were ducking under those ball screens, there was room there for Mike Conley to shoot, and he would not shoot. And so that allowed the Bulls to stay home on the roll man, in this case, Gobert. And so most of those ball screens just weren't generating any sort of advantage. And then in addition to that, uh, uh, Alex Caruso just did an amazing job on Anthony Edwards in the second half, just being physical with him, cutting off his driving lane, same thing, kind of ducking under picks, but making sure he doesn't feel super uncomfortable uh, as he rises up into that pull-up jump shot. Again, it's just such a weapon to have a player like Alex Crusoe who can actually make opposing stars uncomfortable. Like, it's one of the most important parts of having a team that can win the championship. When you actually look around, it's like the the job that Aaron Gordon did last year on LeBron James and on Kevin Durant on the way to uh the Nuggets winning the title, the job that Andrew Wiggins did last year, you know, guarding the likes of Luka Doncic and Jason Tatum, right? The job that Drew Holiday did in 2021, the job that Alex Caruso and Contavius Caldwell Pope did in 2020. Like that ability to have guys that can really, really defend at the point of attack, not just well enough to fulfill their role in the scheme, but actually to get in the head of the offensive player a little bit to where they don't feel as confident. And it's just such a huge asset. And 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 the Bulls just basically shut down Minnesota's offense in the second half. They held them to a 102 offensive rating, just a 73.3 offensive rating for the Wolves in nine minutes of clutch time. The only real success Minnesota had down the stretch offensively was when they would run a guard to guard screen to get someone like Dasun Mu or Kobe White switched on to Ant and then run their ball screens. That was when they were getting the defense in rotation and getting some different stuff. But again, that's a very deliberate thing to do. It takes a certain you know, fortitude to keep actually running the actions you need to generate the advantages you need. And a lot of times it was ugly offense for Minnesota down the stretch as they fell apart. And then Kobe White was the hero offensively in this one. 30 points. In the second half, 10 for 13 from the field, seven for nine from three, hit two huge clutch shots at the end of regulation, a nasty step back three against Carl Towns. And then he had this and one against Jaden McDaniels where Jaden defended it perfectly, funneled him under the basket, walled him up, and he just somehow reached back behind him and finished at the rim and got an and one. It was the actual lead changing shot that put them up, I think, 112, 110 at that point. He's... (laughs) He's got a real case for most improved player this year. Over the course of the last 37 games, which is basically when the Bulls started to get it together, they, uh, uh, um, Kobe White's averaging 22 points, five rebounds, and six assists on 49% from the field, 43% from three, and 82% from the line. He's just on a hell of a run. Uh, the Wolves did end up tying the game and sending it to OT. They ran their best possession of the, uh, of overtime uh, or of regulation. I should say in crunch time, Anthony Edwards ran a ball screen this time. He couldn't get separated from Caruso, but he had a nice little like kind of snake dribble move to get uh, uh, onto the other side of the ball screen against Vucevic that got the defense in rotation. They had a really good ball movement possession where the ball is popping around. It ended up in Carl Towns, hand at the top of the key, he ends up hitting the three uh, to tie the game and send it to overtime but once again, the Minnesota offense just faltered in OT, and DeMar DeRozan took over the game in overtime. He scored her assistant on 12 of Chicago's 14 points, and the Bulls got the win. Here's a fun fact for you. The Bulls have the 10th best record in the league. Since November 30th, they're uh, 19 and 13. They have the 10th best defense in the league over that span. A really athletic core of perimeter players. And that's the key because like when they really get to flying around, getting into the basketball and then flying around in rotation, they can be really difficult to score on. And then they're an excellent rebounding team, thanks to the likes of Andre Drummond and Nikola Vucevic. They are fifth in defensive rebounding since November 30th. On the offensive end of the four, super balanced scoring, 23 points a game from Kobe, 23 points a game from DeMar DeRozan, 19 points a game from Nikola Vucevic, and then Pat Williams, Ayo Desunmo, and Alex Crusoe are all averaging double figures over that span. They may not be a great team, they may not have championship potential, but they're a fun team, and they're capable of being very good And they're a lot, like I said, they're just a lot of fun to watch. And I, 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 that watching that Wolves Bulls game was one of my favorite regular season games of the season. It was just super fun back and forth. You know, even in spite of the crazy defensive effort from Chicago, Anthony Edwards still made some crazy shots down the stretch, hit like a 30 footer on the left wing. It had some crazy finishes around the rim. It was, it was just a fun game to watch on the Minnesota end. Once again, their clutch offense ends up being an issue, a 73 offensive rating and nine minutes of clutch time. In their last nine games that have involved clutch situations, they're scoring just 98 points per 100 possessions. That is atrocious in a large sample size. They are just three and six in those games too. So they're, it's directly leading to losses. They're also down to 20th and clutch offense for the season. This is something that I've preached about all year, and it just continues to be an issue. You could literally hear it on the broadcast. The Wolves announcers were talking about it. You could hear them saying, where are the Wolves going to go for offense here? Down the stretch. Alex Crusoe has put the clamps down on Anthony Edwards. These are things that the uh, Wolves announcers were literally saying. Even the shots they made down the stretch were extremely high-difficulty shots, like Ant making a 30-footer, when they were already down big or, or getting to the foul line when he's driving into traffic. It just there was no like real free-flowing, easy-looking offense. It's not the type of uh top-tier execution that you're accustomed to seeing from teams like Denver, if that makes sense. And really, really what it comes down to, and I've been watching this for a while over the course of the last month, the, the teams can really pack the paint against the Wolves, which will force them to make the right reads, and they can struggle on that front. They they have the fourth most turnovers. Per 100 possessions in clutch situations. By the way, that's an extension of an issue that they have over the course of the 48 minutes as well. They don't take care of the basketball well. That continues to be a problem in clutch time. They had a huge... Turnover in OT last night when it was a four-point game where Jaden McDaniels threw the ball away to Alex Caruso quickly led to two points for the Bulls, and all of a sudden they were down by six. And then you can get away with packing the paint against them because all you have to do is chase them off the three-point line. They're not a high-level closeout attacking team. It's crazy because they shoot the ball extremely well. When you just look at catch-and-shoot efficiency... The Timberwolves are one of the best teams in the league. But when you actually look at their ability to convert spot-up possessions, which, again, that's the actual read of your ability to space the floor. A catch-and-shoot three is just... We talked about this earlier when we were talking about the Bucs and the Suns. That's just one element to beating high-level defense. If you have the athletes, especially teams like Chicago, that have real perimeter speed that can chase you off the three-point line, if you can't actually convert those possessions into points including the possessions where they chase you off the line, you can struggle. The Timberwolves are 24th in spot-up efficiency. Jaden McDaniels is below average, 47th percentile converting spot-up possessions. Carl Towns, excellent catch-and-shoot guy, but chase him off the line and he struggles. Only convert spot-up possessions at 0.94 points per possession. That's 31st percentile. Anthony Edwards, 55th percentile, barely above average. And then Rudy Gobert's out there, too. And so, like, it just turns into this situation... Like you can force them to play drive and kick by chasing them off the line, and they're probably going to turn it over or force a bad shot, make some form of mistake, and 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 they can struggle to score. And so all of those factors just combine to make them relatively easy to guard, especially by the better defenses in the league and the slowdown environment at the end of games. And then to make matters worse, their defense hasn't been very good as of late. That same nine game span of crunch time games, they are uh, uh they have a 130 defensive rating. And even though they have a the best defense in the league by defensive rating over the entirety of the season, they are just 19th in clutch defense this year. It's definitely something to keep an eye on. And it's like, it's con- there's some entry points there. Mike Conley's an entry point. Like Kobe White's taking Carl Towns off the bounce. There's a different, once again, a difference between your base defensive scheme and what you can accomplish versus what is your entry point? Where's the weakness? There's something to be said about your weakest link in those environments, but I'm not as worried about their defense. I think they're going to figure out how to get stops again. Like they have been um, for the most part this season, but it has been a little bit of a concern in clutch situations, but the stuff on offense is the big red flag. Like I think their defense is mostly offense uh, off awesome. It's going to keep them in games, but will they be able to go shot for shot with the likes of a Nikola Jokic with the likes of a Kevin Durant with the likes of a, you know, Kawhi Leonard with the likes of a LeBron James. That's going to be one of the big determining factors for this team in the playoffs. And again, like take take my word for it, my favorite team, the Lakers last year had this exact same issue. They were really bad in clutch time last year. They specifically struggled with over the top shot making and they would stay in every single game on the strength of their defense. And then the Denver Nuggets would just pick them apart with Nicole Jokic and Jamal Murray just being better at playing clutch time basketball. It's actually one of the reasons why I'm more encouraged about the Lakers this year. Last year, LeBron shot 46% in clutch time. This year, LeBron's shooting 62% in clutch time, and he's got his pull-up jump shot back. It's like a huge swing factor for that particular team. But a lot of times, like it comes down to who can execute in the final five minutes. And that's been an issue for Minnesota, and it's something to keep an eye on. from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts
1: And if you put in the code GABBY2024 on our website, you'll get an exclusive 20% off your first purchase.
0: Have you guys ever had a bad ticket buying experience? Maybe you go to checkout and it ends up being way more expensive than it was when you clicked on it. Or maybe you go to your seat and it ends up being not what you expected when you bought it to begin with. Or maybe it's just an overly convoluted and complicated process. Well, this is where I want to talk to you guys about GameTime, the fastest growing ticketing app, In the United States. They have all-in pricing. So you know exactly what your total is going to be. Up front, and you know you're getting a great deal before you check out. Also, you get to see the view from your seat in the app. So you know exactly what you're getting for your money. And it's a super easy process. You can buy tickets in seconds with two taps. Game Time has deals on tickets right up to the start of the event. And even an hour after it starts, it's the place to find last minute seats. You can find exclusive flash deals and sponsored deals on tickets for football, basketball, baseball, concerts, comedy, theater, and more. And this is the coolest part. The game time guarantee means you'll always get the best price. If you find tickets in the same section and row for less, GameTime will credit you 110% of the difference, and as great as it is watching these games on TV, especially with the NBA heating up here on the home stretch, go out and see a game. Go to see one in person. The NBA is in a really great place right now with talent. You got to get into the arena to really get the full experience. Take the guesswork out of buying tickets with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code HOOPS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account. And redeem code HOOPS, that's H O O P S, for $20 off. Download game time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. All right, let's move on to our mailbag. We have seven or eight questions today. First question My friend and I got in a debate yesterday. He said he would trade a few of the starting five for the Nuggets to get Luca on the team, if hypothetically this was possible. And he said he would fill the holes or at least Murray and Porter. I disagreed and said you could do a one-for-one, but it would be completely the wrong move. Just wanted your thoughts on it. I know Luka and Nikola Jokic uh, want to be on the same team one day, but neither of us have the illusion this is remotely possible in the near future. When I heard you talking about hypothetical LeBron trades, I figured you would weigh in on this as well. Thanks and love your content. You're right. I love a good hypothetical. And yes, no, there's no chance in hell that Luka Doncic and Nikola Jokic are going to play together. Here's the thing. I am a big believer in diminishing returns when it comes to star power. Like, in my opinion, if you have two legitimate shot creators, then it's more important for you to have quality role players around them than to bring in a third legitimate shot creator. And there's something to be said about the beauty of a five man basketball lineup. Like, regardless of the fact that there's no like true superstar next to Nikola Jokic, every single one of those players, whether it's Jamal Murray or Contavis Colwell Pope, Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon, they're all stars in their roles. D- Jamal Murray is just a star shot maker. And so therefore, he is a perfect fit with Nikola Jokic in the two-man game. Because if you cover it, you have to concede something. And most teams will concede Jamal Murray-Isos. And and, in his ability to convert those, especially against teams that switch that action goes a long way or a chase over the top and stay home on the roll man, where he has opportunity to get separation from the screen. That's what teams are willing to concede. And he continues to make those shots. KCP just attacking off of dribble handoffs, attacking out of spot up situations and defending the other team's best perimeter defender or perimeter uh, offensive weapon. He's awesome at that. He's a star in that role. Michael Porter Jr., weak side shooting, help side defense, defensive rebounding, offensive rebounding when he's being ignored. He's a star at that. He's one of the best spot players in the league, right? Aaron Gordon... Just the perfect shoe in forward to put next to Nicole Jokic because he brings the athleticism and defensive versatility that Nicole Jokic does not bring to the position. He's an excellent wing defender while also being an excellent help defender, while also being an excellent defensive rebounder and the perfect guy to run along the baseline for their offense when Nicole Jokic is operating around the elbow. And so again, like it's it to me, that is a concoction I would never mess with until one of those four guys, like and like if K- if KCP in two years starts to show some kind of decline, then sure, you can look to to, to make some sort of change. But as long as those four, that, that five-man grouping is all operating at this level, you got to do whatever you can to keep them together. Because it's very rare when you can capture real magic in a five-man basketball lineup and that Denver group has captured that magic. And I would try to maintain that as long as possible. Next question. Hey, Jason, knowing you read a lot of the comments, I want to point something out. In 2022, you praised Jason Tatum for his commitment on the defensive end, And I think based solely on eye test, Jalen Brown has made a similar commitment this year. He takes on the best matchups every night now. And I'd like to know what you think if you take a closer look and rewatch some of the games. I hear people questioning who is the second best player, and that is insane to me. With Jalen's offensive production combined with the defense this year, it's not close. Thanks. So... I agree in the sense that Jalen Brown is in a vacuum, the second best player on the team, especially when you look at talent. And I agree, his, his ability to impact the game defensively while providing scoring production is legitimate. The reason why it gets a little complicated is like, sometimes there's a difference between like talent and value. And so for instance, let's look at Derek White. This this is a team that struggles with offensive decision making and half court like real like real slow down shot creation from time to time as it pertains to decision making. So Derek White becomes immensely valuable for them as one of the guys that they can use to kind of dissect half court defense. And so that is why one of their go to actions at the end of games is Derek White, Jason Tatum, two man game. They do that because they trust Derek White to have the basketball in his hands in those big moments. So there's something to be said about the value of a Derek White. Kristaps Porzingis, the same thing between pick and pop being the most difficult action in the league to guard and specifically the value of a real rim protector alongside all their perimeter defenders. There's something to be said about Porzingis' value. By the way, when you look at the uh, the, uh, on-off numbers for the Celtics. According to cleaning the glass, the three best on-off guys on the team are Derek White, Jason Tatum, and Kristaps Porzingis. And so again, I agree with you. It's not it's not a question of talent. Like Jalen Brown's a better basketball player than Derek White. He's a better basketball player than Kristaps Porzingis. But what you when you look at this specific team and and roster needs, Jalen Brown's a little bit of a redundancy next to Jason Tatum. Whereas Derek White and Kristaps Porzingis fulfill absolutely vital roles for that group. It, to to put it differently, like. Obviously, you don't want to see anybody get hurt, but if Derek White got hurt, I think it would hurt the Celtics more than Jalen Brown getting hurt or vice versa with with, with, uh, with Chris Ops Porzingis. And I think, again, that's not a shot at Jalen Brown. It just is a, a product of the roster construction. Next question. Hey, Jason, big fan of the show. It's a great place to expand my knowledge as someone with no background in the game. Two Warriors questions for you. We'll go one at a time. What I understood from the evolution of your opinion regarding the Warriors, front, uh, what the Warriors front office should do is that they should go all in on winning with Steph. In addition, they shouldn't trade J.K., who will probably take a few years to develop into a good enough number two. I don't understand how those two goals go together considering all the personnel problems the Warriors have and Steph turning 36 soon. Him being this good still is already an anomaly, It would be great if he was still good in a couple of years to play with a developed JK, but I don't think it's smart to just expect that for the record. Those were two separate opinions that I had. So like I thought the Warriors should go all in on Steph. And then JK had this 10 game stretch where he averaged 25 points a game on 61% shooting. And it's like, Oh shit, you got yourself a star here. So now like you're trading away a star, a future star to, to try to get back, I don't know, high quality role players. Right. And so that's where it gets super convoluted. Like, To me, I agree. Those two uh, concepts are kind of opposed to each other, right? Like there's just, it's just not possible to go all in on Steph without trading Jonathan Kaminga because Jonathan Kaminga is your best opportunity to bring back quality players. And so the reality is, like the decision got made for you by Jonathan Kaminga's rise. And so now it actually makes more sense to do smaller moves on the margins and hope for your biggest influx of talent to be Jonathan Kaminga's development over the course of the next couple of years. Next question. You've uh, you've spoken a lot about the Warriors' woes this season, but one thing you didn't mention is that Steph has has a negative net rating which hasn't happened since his rookie season when the entire team was pretty bad. What do you think is different this season that's causing this? And how can they fix it? I know them doing anything of significance this year is already a long shot, but I'm pretty sure they won't do anything if they're already losing when their best player is on the floor. So the reasons are pretty simple. Draymond Green is the second best player on the Warriors in, uh, this season in terms of like two way impact. He's, he's, that's, he always just pairs so well with Steph on both ends of the floor with helping Steph generate quality looks while also anchoring their defense. And I think he's only played like what, 21, 22 games this year. So like he just, he's been gone for most of it. So that, that's a huge part of it. Clay Thompson has experienced his experience first substantial decline as a, as a veteran. And then Andrew Wiggins just has not been the same player that he was in 2022. To put it simply, that's a massive pullback of talent. The players that you've been supplementing that with are young players. Young players bring inconsistency, right? So like that to me is the reasoning behind the low net rating. The reason why I don't think that should play a role in their decision-making is to put it simply, like Steph is still one of those guys, one of the special talents in the league. And so like, I mean, the dude just dropped 60 the other night. So like to the way I look at it, Basketball has, uh, basketball has a. uh, a, We talked earlier about the Nuggets lineup and the way that it kind of has like a a, a magic quality to it. In my opinion, like basketball is is not as simple as the sum of the parts. So you might, if you take away twenty percent of your talent, that doesn't necessarily amount to a twenty percent decrease in production. If those twenty percent, if the twenty percent of talent that gets pulled out of the equation is in vital areas of that lineup's ability to be coherent. Then you could experience a sixty percent reduction in the lineups' uh, capability of contending in a in a basketball game, right? Because, like, again, like you take Draymond Green out of the equation, they they had a stretch there where they were the worst defense in the league for an extended stretch. Like, like it, 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 the bottom falls out in a lot of these specific situations, and so the same thing goes in reverse. Like I, I talk about this with all these teams. It's like it's the Lakers last year. It's like, oh, they don't have any forwards. Okay, you bring in Rui Hachimura and Jared Vanderbilt, two cast off forwards that other teams didn't watch. And then all of a sudden, they look like a way better basketball team because they have a position group that they did not have on the roster all of a sudden filled. Like, that's kind of the idea behind it is like, the idea is you get Draymond back, you know, Jonathan Kamiga plays a, a lot better, you make one smart move for a veteran forward, and like all of a sudden, everything starts to make sense again and things can work. So, like, Don't underestimate, uh, um, don't overreact, I should say, to that kind of statistical production involving a star. Like the Lakers this year have not been particularly good with LeBron James and Anthony Davis on the floor, but LeBron James and Anthony Davis are actually having a better season than last year. It comes down to the struggles of the skill guards, Darvin Hammond, the way he's constructed the rotations, the heavy leaning on Torian Prince. So you have a lack of perimeter athleticism, right? Like the specific. Ah, uh, personnel weakness and not having a top-tier athlete at the guard position. Like all of those things, it's not like LeBron and a d are negative players. It's not like Steph Curry is a negative player. It's just the basketball lineup is dipped below that certain mandatory amount of uh, of fulfilling of responsibilities to be able to compete. And so once you get down below that line, it can it becomes a little bit dangerous. And so, again, I don't think it's over for the Warriors. I'm a big believer. You get Chris Paul back. You get Gary Payton back. You get the rise of Jonathan Kaminga. Andrew Wiggins starts to play a little bit more like he did in 2022. It could pretty quickly rise back to being a, a competent basketball team. Next question. I have three left. What do you think of uh, if the Warriors tried to trade for Jonathan Isaac or possibly trade Wiggins plus others picks or CP3 to the Pacers for maybe Miles Turner or Buddy A Couple things. Miles Turner is not going anywhere I don't think. Uh, he's kind of a little bit of a foundational piece there in 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 Indy and specifically as a stretch big he's very valuable next to Tyrese Saliburton. It's one of their pet actions. And then also next to Pascal Siakam who can be somewhat streaky as a four man, having a shooting five is somewhat important for them. There's also a a problem with trading Andrew Wiggins in the sense that, like, how much like what has a better chance of your team getting better? Flipping Wiggins for a different player or Wiggins just plays better. Like, in my opinion, you get through the deadline, it becomes clear that Andrew Wiggins is not getting traded. It give him a really clear spot in the rotation where his minutes are consistent, you might get more consistent production. And I personally think that he belongs in the starting lineup next to Jonathan Kaminga and I give him consistency there and let Andrew Wiggins just kind of refine his confidence and I I've, I've seen a lot of encouraging stuff out of him in the last couple of weeks too but I do think at a bare minimum they should be targeting some form of playoff playable forward at the deadline that could be a different type of uh, of contract swap whether that's like you know Moses Moody and another one of their minimums or or who knows what what how they would kind of kind of construct that sort of thing but I don't care whether it's a Dorian Finney Smith or a Ken Rich Williams or a PJ Washington I mean Jonathan Isaac would be amazing but he's flashed some insane high level defense again this year so I don't know if Orlando would be willing to get rid of him but maybe they would maybe with his injury history they'd want to sell high on him and maybe you can jump on a guy like that but then you're taking on the risk of his injury history right so that gets a little tricky but regardless of what kind of guy it is, just bringing in another veteran playable forward, simplifying you know, Steve Kerr's rotation decisions, that could go a long way towards uh, uh, towards getting them back on track as well. Two more. You say Tatum is going to figure it out, and most players do around 26, 27 years old. But most good players get drafted to bad teams, and it takes a while for them to go on deep playoff runs. He's been to multiple conference finals and won finals already. Shouldn't he have figured it out yet? The jumper he shot on KCP to finish the Denver game killed me. He had plenty of time to drive it, in my opinion, kind of like LeBron on Paul George in 2013. It's actually kind of an interesting idea because on that Paul George play, LeBron caught and then quickly pivoted over his right shoulder and went right to the rim. And Tatum kind of did the same thing, but right when he pivoted, he went right back into that uh, one-leg fadeaway. And so he didn't even really try to be more physically aggressive on the play. And you're right, he did have some more time. Here's the thing. I agree with you that his timeline should be accelerated. Like, 26 years old, it's time to start figuring it out. That I agree. That said, I still think it's way too soon to just say he'll never get there because he is making strides and there have been encouraging moments. And again, like, there just aren't that many guys in the league that are as talented as Jason Tatum. He's got one of the most gifted physical profiles of a forward that we have in the league. Can really shoot the basketball. The handle's improving year by year. I I do think that, th- that that ceiling is still there. But I guess I agree with you in the sense that it is discouraging that it's taken as long as it has taken, especially considering how much experience he has. Last question. Are you coming to Indy for All-Star Weekend, and have you ever considered a meet-and-greet? So I'm not going to Indy for All-Star Weekend, but I typically every year get out to Summer League, and that's a the best opportunity in Vegas uh, for you guys to come out and, and hang out. We can meet in person and chat about the game a little bit. Uh, I will be on Twitter letting you guys know exactly what dates I'm out there. But I'm usually just in the gym. I usually, you know I uh, just go up there and uh, whatever the first game is, and I just hang out in the arena until until they're done. So you can always find me in the arena at summer League. And if at some point in the future I end up traveling to more NBA events, I'll let you guys know. But as of right now, i'm I'm pretty much just a, a cover the game from home kind of guy. so we'll we'll see how it changes in the long run. But hopefully I can see some of you guys in vegas in july all right guys that's all i have for today as always i sincerely appreciate your support barring a star trade this evening we won't have anything tonight but we will have a live show right after the trade deadline tomorrow and then again live after lakers nuggets i will see you guys then
2: See Lisa.com for more details.